Today's the fifth Sunday of Lent. It's known as the Sunday of the paralytic man, and we just read the story. Um, this man waited for 38 years for his turn when the angel moved the water in order to jump in and be healed. Um, and during the Lent, during Lent, the church reads the stories of four individuals or four people, some parables, some real stories. The prodigal son, the Samaritan woman, today's the paralyzed man, and next week is the born blind. And so there's four, so four characters back to back that the church talks about during Lent. And if you look carefully, all the stories are really quite similar. They're all sort of the same story. All of them tell us about a person who was left behind, who was neglected, shunned, dismissed, ostracized by others. And all three stories sort of end somewhat unexpectedly, where the person who is sought out, who, is, who you least thought was likely to be sought out, is sought out and healed and healed and cured. And all these stories aren't about the, the powerful, the rich, the strong, the righteous, the clergy, the powerful, the ones accepted about in society. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's about the ones who are outcast by society, downtrodden, the weak, the neglected, the disgusting. And all of these stories sort of point out the, the juxtaposition, the contrast between Israel, the old concept of religion, and Christ, who actually came, and who Christ actually came to save. And so there's the righteous people of the Old Testament and all of their characteristics, whether it be the good son in the story of the prodigal son, or being a righteous man, Jew, in the story of the Samaritan woman, um, and then today's story, St. Augustine talks about the five porches. You notice it's the Pool of Bethesda. And he says these five porches remind him of the five books of the Torah. It's the law. And ultimately, these five books, the law, cannot heal anybody. And that's why it's surrounded by sick people. And all the sick people that come to it, most of them remain sick. And it solidifies the fact that the law really can't make us into someone holy. The law of the Old Testament simply exposes to you how unholy you are and how bad you are and how much you fall short of the glory of God. And when you look at the Ten Commandments, did it ever make anyone holy? Not really. It just points out where you aren't holy. And it made you point, uh, figure out how far you fall short and exposes your weakness to you. So if it isn't the law, then what is it? What changes us? And it's that angel that comes down and blesses the water. And so if we follow St. Augustine again, he says the angel that comes down and touches the water and gives it the power to heal, that angel is Christ, Christ himself. So all of these stories have the same theme, that Christ came to establish a new kingdom based on himself. And many of the ways of the Old Testament thinking are not the way God sees things, and that the Pharisees had distorted sort of who God was and how we were called to worship him. In fact, in this story, Christ did something uh, um, pretty interesting. He told the dead man to carry his bed and walk. And he knew it was the Sabbath, and he purposefully told him to break the law, purposefully knowing that the Jews, the Pharisees, were right there and that would see him break the law. But let's kind of move on from this symbolic meaning of the Old Testament versus the New Testament to a more personal and practical level for ourselves. So the first thing we notice in the story is the paralytic man is not named. 
And so whenever the, the gospel writers don't name someone, we have to think to ourselves that the unnamed person is us. So we're, we are that paralyzed man. And we have to think about this story. We have to think about ourselves. So when Christ asked him one of the strangest questions in the history of questions, do you want to be made well? It's a very interesting question. And we notice, the first thing we notice is the, the paralytic man didn't answer the question. He basically responded, said, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but when I'm coming, someone else jumps out in front of me. So he didn't really answer his question. He just simply told him why it's not happening for him. And so there's really two components, two pieces that are stopping his healing that I want to talk about. The first is this exterior component. He's blaming the people for the circumstances that are preventing him from getting better. He's blaming others. And sometimes we may ask someone, hey, you know, do you want to come to church? When are you going to come to church next? Do you want to meet God? And the answer is, you know, the people at church bother me. The priest is no good. The deacons are no good. The hymns are too long. The servants don't care. But that isn't what I asked you. The question is, the question isn't who's getting in our way and who's helping us and who isn't helping us. The question is, do you want to be made well? And usually our answer is a series of excuses about other people and how they prevent us from getting better. And this answer just reminds me of the church, right? It's the people. The people cause me to sin. Every time I get too involved, someone really bothers me at church or something happens or I get in a fight with another servant or I disagree about something. And these things don't give me peace. And so let's go back to St. Augustine for a second. He's basically saying this is the fruit of the Old Testament, of the Mosaic Law. It just doesn't work very well. You see, the people around the paralytic man, they didn't love him. They jumped in front of him. They didn't know who Christ was. They didn't understand the laws of Christ. They knew the law of Moses. And whenever they saw that this water would get stirred up, they would cut ahead of a paralyzed guy and jump in front of him. And that's an interesting thing to do. Every once in a while, you know, we, we, we offer other people to go ahead of us, you know, and it's really seen as a really nice act. But it's one thing to kind of do it at a very shallow level, right? I mean, if I open the door for someone and say, no, no, you go first. He says, no, you go first. I say, no, you go first, right? It's two seconds and I'm going to go through the door, right? It's not, it's not a very big sacrifice, right? Or if I tell someone to take communion ahead of me, and they're like, no, you go. And I say, no, you go. Well, I mean, there's enough communion for all of us, right? I'll, I'll just take communion in, in five seconds. So that's, that's not a big deal. But what happens if letting someone go ahead of me comes at a cost, a real cost? What if it means that they get better and I remain sick? Will I still help that person? Let's take it another step. I'll help maybe my kids. Maybe I'll help my spouse. Maybe help my parents. But will I help someone I don't know very well? Will I help someone who's a total stranger? And this is the Christian approach of saying, I am the last and I have to let others be first. You go first, I'll wait. I'll wait here and I'll sacrifice for you. I mean, it's one thing to offer something when it doesn't matter, but it's something else to offer it when it matters. I mean, you imagine I get a cup of water and then I notice you need a cup of water. I go, here, you can have my cup. And someone says, oh, that's your cup. And I'll say, no, I'll get another one. It's fine. 
you go ahead and have this cup of water. Very, very sacrificial of me. But what if it's the last cup of water? What if I'm in the middle of the desert and I'm surrounded by a bunch of people and that's the last cup? Would I hand it to the person? Would I give it to them? Would I still offer it? And today, that's sort of the level Christ is asking from us. Well, I, well am I willing to work so my brother can rest? Am I willing to struggle so my brother can relax? Am I willing to lose so that my brother can gain? In today's story, I'll remain sick so that my brother can get well. Would I be willing to throw this man into the pool ahead of me, seeing his infirmity and judging it to be worse than mine? Go hungry so my brother can eat. And are there people like this among us? They are. There are many. And you all, see, you all see where I'm going with this. Am I willing to die so that someone else can live? And so let me ask this differently. Are we willing to be Christians, truly like Christ, willing to give so that someone else gains? Yesterday, uh, Abuna Andrew gave a, a beautiful eulogy on Uncle Sammy, God rest his soul, and how Uncle Sammy had touched so many people and how we thought of other people, how he served other people, how he cared about other people, even ahead of himself, even when he was in the hospital. And I imagine that if Uncle Sammy were at the pool next to this paralyzed man, that he wouldn't hesitate to throw the paralyzed man into the water first when the angel moved the spring. And so Christ came with this radical new mentality, not survival of the fittest, but he came with this idea, whoever wants to be first must be the servant to others. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a radical idea. And so there's two pieces kind of stopping the paralytic man from getting healed. The first is this exterior component. These people, people are getting in the way. And of course, people aren't like Christ. And maybe I can use their behavior as an excuse, but let's be honest, this isn't ideal. People aren't like Jesus. There aren't that many people who sacrifice themselves for others. There aren't that many people that would give you a cup of water before they drank it. There aren't a lot of people that would throw you into the pool before they went in themselves. And ultimately, what we really need to focus on isn't on what other people are doing, but what I should be doing, not what I expect from other people. So even if I can block out everyone else, the negative community, all the, the talk, the whatever um, negative energy that are, that's out there, and I can make all kinds of excuses. And in, in fact, the excuses are, you know, a dime a dozen, right? If I had a better job, if there's a better church, if I had a better spouse, if I had better kids, better parents, better accountants, anything, right? My life would be better. So what's my role here? And this is the second piece. So let's block out the exterior for a second and think about ourselves. The one I can focus on today, the interior piece of this. And so in our own spiritual lives, this paralyzed man is the perfect metaphor for us, paralyzed. There can sometimes be this paralysis to move forward. Why? Sometimes, I don't know, we're just tired of failing. We fail a lot, and sometimes we try and we just can't, even though we're trying, especially during Lent. Remember all the promises you made yourself at the beginning of Lent, 
all the things we were going to do better during Lent. And why does this keep happening? So the interesting part of the story is that he said he had no one to throw him into the water. And whatever he tried, he would fail. And he tried. I was watching The, the Chosen, um, and this scene is very moving. But the, the, the paralyzed man, the actor in the movie, he really begged Jesus. And he said, I've been trying so hard. I keep trying. And Jesus just looked at him and says, I know you do. He tried over and over and over again to come overcome his disease, and he failed over and over again. Sounds a lot like me. So ultimately, this story can be told a different way. Maybe he was just trying to do it himself. And then Christ comes along and says, no, I have to do it for you. It's not going to work for you to do it yourself. You're just going to keep failing. It's actually impossible for you to do it yourself. And it's so clear in this story that the man couldn't do it himself, but somehow it's unclear for me in my own spiritual life just how impossible this is. Because we have paralysis as well. We have the paralysis of self-doubt, the paralysis of our sins, the paralysis sometimes caused by hatred of others, lack of love for others, the paralysis of my lack of forgiveness of other people the paralysis that comes with so many sins. In fact, in the litany of the sick, we say those who are prisons or dungeons, those who are in prisons or dungeons, those who are in captivity, and those who are held in bitter bondage. Are there people in prisons and dungeons still? Is that still a thing? Yeah, all around us. People in prisons and dungeons everywhere we look. And so then we all have to ask Christ this question, can you really heal me? So now let's see what we can learn from this. There's a wide, widespread mistaken belief in theology sometimes out there that says holiness is the work of human beings. What we need to do is we have to have a clear program of perfection. We set out to work with courage and patience, and we achieve it little by little. And that's all there is to it. This program, we put it out, and we achieve holiness. But there's kind of two problems with this line of thinking. The first one is you can't do it alone. Setting out to do it yourself, like this paralyzed man quickly learned, is impossible. It's impossible to attain holiness by our own power. The whole of Scripture teaches us that can only be the fruit of God's grace. Jesus even said it once very directly, apart from me, you can do nothing, which sounds kind of harsh, little egotistical, Apart from me, you can do nothing. And St. Paul even says it. He says, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. And so we don't have the power to become saints on our own. We have to learn how to let God make us into saints. And so our efforts have to be directed to the right end. We should, we should fight for sure but not to attain holiness as a result of our own efforts, but to let God act in us without us, up, without us putting up any resistance to him. That's where the effort has to be. We should fight to open ourselves up as fully as possible so that he can work in us. That's where the fight is. Fight against the self so that God can be glorified. St. Seraphim of Sarav has this wonderful quote, and it's very relevant during Lent. He says, however, 
prayer, fasting, vigil, and all the other Christian practices may be, however beneficial prayer, fasting, and vigil, and all the other Christian practices may be, they do not constitute the aim of our Christian life. They're not the goal. Although it is true that they serve as an indispensable means of reaching this end, the true aim of our Christian life consists in the acquisition of the Holy Spirit of God. These are, the only, me- these are only means of acquiring the Spirit of God. So these things become us trying to get that angel that comes down and moves the water, that Holy Spirit that touches us. The second issue, the last one that we're going to talk about with the statement that holiness is the work of human beings, that I have to achieve it by setting out this pattern of perfection where I work and and, uh, try to achieve achieve it little by little, is that ultimately we don't know what our road is. We don't know our path to holiness. So there are many forms of holiness, and there are many ways to holiness, just as there are as many people. So cute. Every person is absolutely unique. And holiness is not just a, a given model of perfection. We're not all called to look the same. Just look around the church at the variety of saints around the church, all of them very, very different from one another. No two are the same. Not two, no two of us are the same. In fact, there are so many models and paths to holiness, so many that God even gives us a unique fingerprint to let us know, yes, you're that unique. And so to, be, to reach holiness, we can't be content just to follow principles that apply to everyone. We need to understand what God is asking of me in particular. And he may not be asking that of everyone else. It can, it can happen that I'm making superhuman efforts on one front that God doesn't really want me to be focused on, whereas the the place he wants me to focus on, I'm neglecting and I'm not looking at. And so we have to focus on what he wants from me. And so God calls us to perfection, but he's not a perfectionist, and nor does he expect perfection. And so how do we follow his voice? How do we know our road to perfection? A couple of things that help during Lent. Resolve to refuse nothing to God. Resolve to refuse God in nothing. We should have a very strong determination to obey God in everything, big or little, without any exception. The more God sees his disposition in us, the more he will favor us with his inspirations. And so we should love this obedience more than disobedience. No matter what it is, big or little, I follow God. Number two, Practice abandonment. There are sets of circumstances we can do nothing about. We fall into all kinds of situations, whether it be illness, problems at home, problems with the family, problems at work. They're not necessarily willed by God, but they're, they're permitted by Him. And God invites us to consent peacefully even if they make us suffer and cause us problems. Consent to the problems. We are not being asked to consent to evil, but to consent to the mysterious wisdom of God who permits evil. Our consent is not a compromise with evil, but with the expression of our trust that God is stronger than evil. And this is the form of obedience 
that is very painful, but very fruitful. It means that after we have done everything in our power, we are invited, faced with what is still imposed on us, to practice an attitude of abandonment and trust toward our Heavenly Father. And so what ends up happening is when these bad things happen to us, sort of like this paralyzed man, we rebel, we push back, we fight it. In fact, sometimes we ask God to take it away. Or sometimes we endure them unwillingly. Fine, if that's the way it has to be, I'll deal with it. Or sometimes we resign ourselves to it passively and just say, whatever, I don't care anymore. But God invites us to a much fruitful attitude towards some of these difficulties. St. Therese says, I choose it all. We can give this the meaning. I choose everything that God wants for me. I won't contend myself with merely enduring, but by a free act of my will, I decide to choose what I have not chosen. I want everything that causes me difficulties. And so instead of just letting these paralysis and these issues happen to us and we sit there and just tolerate it, let's choose it. Let's say this is what I want. And then finally, the last thing to do is to practice detachment. So we need to keep in our hearts this attitude of detachment, maintaining a distance, a freedom, an inner reserve from all relationships, from all people, from all situations, from work, from church, from everything. Practice this level of just, I'm going to keep a distance. And it should be in all aspects of our lives. Another, another spiritual writer writes, and I like this, let your will always be ready for anything that happens and your affections perfectly disengaged. Want not one thing more than another, but if you do, let it be in such a manner that if that, not that thing, but the contrary were to happen, you would receive equal satisfaction. So you see what she's saying? Even though you want one thing, if the other thing happens, you would be equally satisfied with both outcomes. True liberty is to adhere to nothing, to have no dependence, no bias. God does not perform his wonders except in the thus solitary and disinterested soul. So accepting these disciplines and and this detachment from our own passions is the key. So St. Paul says in Hebrews, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as as discipline. God is treating you as his children. And so this kind of reminds me of the paralytic so much. Enduring this hardship. With, and as discipline. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. all right. So let's get back to the question that Christ asked and how that relates to me. Do you want to be made well? So today, let's say together, my Lord, with my own free will, I want to be made well. I want to give you my life. I want to live in your house. Not because you forced me to come, 
but because I've learned from the prodigal son that life outside of your house is just not that great. The Father's house is not a prison. The church is not a prison. We're not forced to come here, nor should we ever feel forced or coerced to come here or feel guilty by anyone. We want to say to Christ that we want to reach out our hand into yours, and we want you to pull us up. And the question is, is it that easy? Do I just look up, put my hand into Christ's, and say, pull me up? It doesn't seem that easy sometimes. And all this reminds me of something Abuna Krillo said a few years ago on Temptation Sunday. He said that victory is easy. He said Christ already won. That Satan is like this vicious dog that's tied up to a tree and you just don't want to get too close. I love that expression and I've been thinking about it over the last few years. And so how do we get that easy victory? We failed so many times. And this man, he put all his effort into getting better. He tried everything, and he failed. But he tried. And that's an important spiritual principle. If we say to ourselves together, yes, today I want to be healed, then we have to do everything we possibly can to make that happen. True, it may not lead us to victory, as we see it, but it is the practical and real way to affirm our assent of our free will to wanting to be healed. This is what we can do, and this is how we can do it. This is how we throw our hat into the ring and say, yes, I'm part of the fight. I'm in this battle. I'm in this fight with Christ. Today, I can't put myself in the pool, nor do I have anyone else to put me in the pool. I can't stop sin, and no one has really been able to help me. Now what? I look up to God alone. I go back to my Father. I say, yes, that Christ can offer his hand and I'll take it. And at that moment, my gaze goes directly to God's eyes, directly to Christ's eyes. All my hopes go into God alone and no one else. And as the psalm teaches us, my eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will free my feet from the snares. So today as a community, let's say together, Lord, I stand before you and enough is enough. The past has gone away. Let's forget that past life, all 38 years of it, or 40 years, or 50 years, or whatever it is. And I've come to this conclusion that I cannot, with my own strength, repent. Nor can I, with anyone else's help, repent. I really have no hope but in Christ. I have no one else but you, and I will return to my Father. I'll read you this final quote. And it, and it captures the feeling of our father as we come back, captured very much in the story of the prodigal son. Imagine that a father has two children who has been naughty and disobedient, and that when he comes to punish them, he sees one who trembles and runs away from him in terror, knowing in his heart that he deserves to be punished. But his brother, instead, throws himself into his father's arms. So this is the son who was naughty, his dad goes to punish him, and what does the brother do? He throws himself into his father's arms, telling him that he's sorry, and he's displeased him. He loves him, and to prove it, he will be good from now on. I believe that the father's heart will not be able to resist his son's filial trust, since he knows his sincerity and love. Yet he also knows that his son will fall into the same sin, faults, the same faults again, but he is always ready to forgive him if the son always appeals to his heart.
So I think all of us as parents, some of us as parents, some of us as kids, we know this feeling of running into our parents' bosom. And the feeling as parents we get when our kid runs into our bosom and how much love we have for them. May the Lord grant us the last few weeks of Lent to start our repentance and to undo the paralysis that have taken 38 years to grow on us. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Our Father.